will turn or scroll in your Bible app or your actual Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. We are really in the home stretch here of our series through the book of Acts. We are one chapter away from the final chapter. And as we covered in recent weeks, uh, you may recall that Paul is in this portion of the narrative being falsely accused by the Jewish leaders. And it's an ordeal that has lasted uh, a few years. Paul, being a Roman citizen, has appealed to Caesar and wishes to exercise his right to have a trial uh, before him. So Acts 27 is a detailed account of Paul's long journey on the high seas from Caesarea to Rome. It would involve two ships, one that lasted for the first five verses of the chapter and another one from verse six and through the end for when Paul does arrive at Rome. So let's pick it up in verse one, Acts 27 verse one, and we'll just walk through this narrative quickly together to get a better understanding of what is being recorded here by Dr. Luke. Verse one, and when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, so I want to stop right there, you'll see the pronoun there, we. What does that mean? That actually means that Luke is back with Paul. So understand that the author of this book, Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, is traveling with Paul. We haven't seen Luke in Acts since chapter 21. So Luke was likely living in Caesarea during Paul's two-year imprisonment, but now wanted to be with his friend, his brother in Christ, as he set sail for Rome. As you can see in verse 2, ship number 1 was to set sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Verse 3 says, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So even though Paul was a prisoner, Paul was granted favor and allowed to leave the ship and visit friends. Now, why would Paul be granted this favor as a prisoner? Well, it's because of what we've covered in previous chapters, because Paul has developed a reputation for submitting to the governing authorities. And as we saw in Acts 25, Paul had mastered or was mastering the art of what he preached in Romans 13 and what we read elsewhere in the Bible as well, of simultaneously submitting to this pagan government, but also appealing and exercising his rights as a citizen. In other words, he was a trustworthy prisoner. So Julius granted Paul the ability to leave the ship. Yeah, go ahead, visit friends, do your thing, man. Because he had confidence that Paul would, what? Return to the ship, not run away. And that's exactly what Paul did. So pick it up in verse six, uh, Acts 27, verse six. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And so we know that Luke and Paul got on that ship. That's where the centurion put them on. And we know that it's a large ship because by the end of the chapter, Paul says he's one of 276 people. But now the trip goes from bad to worse. Pick it up in verse seven. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with what? Difficulty off of Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of the Crete off Salmon, coasting along it with, there it is again, difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, uh, Paul advised them, saying, here's Paul in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion, in verse 11, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, we say that's because he's a centurion, he's a pagan. No, it's probably because you would do the same thing, right? We got this prisoner who's saying, I perceive that this trip will be difficult. And the centurion's like, 
Thank you, Captain Obvious. Yes, I know. I see the waves. We're all throwing up. This is a really difficult time. I think I'm going to pay more attention to the captain and the owner of this ship than for this random prisoner. You go do your thing. And so he pays no attention to him and moves on. Pick it up in verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. As a fellow Northeastern citizen, I can tell you that we have this term today. It's a Nor'easter, and exactly in the Greek is the exact same thing of what it is today. It is winds coming from the north and east causing a violent storm. It struck down from the land, verse 15. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. That'll play a little important part to us later on. Secure the ship's boat. So there's a ship, and then there's a boat that was attached to the ship. And I remember the first time I was on a cruise, I said, this is a really big boat. And there was somebody who worked there that said, this is a ship. And I was like, ooh, okay, you're right. This is a ship. So there's the ship, and then there's boats, right? There's a ship, and there's lifeboats. So the boats are small. The ship is big. There's a ship attached to this boat so that they could let it down and then go their way as they needed to go to land or do whatever they, they needed to do. Pick it up in verse 17. After hoisting it up, so they lift it up, make sure it's nice and high, they use supports to undergird the ship. Now, this was called frapping. Frapping has nothing to do with coffee. It's called frapping. They took these, these large uh, belt-like things that would wrap around the ship, and then they would wench it together so that it would literally hold the ship together. And so they undergirded the ship. That's what they were doing. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So Sirtis was like this graveyard of ships that was really off the northern coast of Africa. They were nowhere near there, but they didn't know where they were. They were being blown around to and fro, and they were concerned that they would uh, also be added to this area where many ships had perished. And so they were concerned that they were going to be running aground on the Sirtis. They were nowhere near it. And so what do they do? They lower the gear. They lower the sail so that they wouldn't be blown that way and would just be driven along the coast. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So they're throwing it overboard. Verse 19. The third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So understand that both during day and night, they saw neither sun nor stars. So it's unbelievably dark. It's unbelievably cloudy. And they're saying, there's no way we're going to be saved by any human being. No one's ever going to be able to see us. We're lost out here. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time. Now that's not because they did not have food. That's probably because they were as interested as eating food as you would be if you were on a ship at that time. They were seasick. We see later on in the chapter, they have food. In fact, they enjoy food. So it's not that they forgot the food, they by accident threw it overboard. No, they were like, I don't want to eat because I can't hold anything down. But they had been without food for a long time. Verse 21, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and, <laughs> and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So it's nice to see that even the apostle Paul is not above a little I told you so, Right. But that's, a, that's not what he's doing. He's not like, you really should have paid attention, kind of a big deal. Don't know if you heard of me, I'm the Apostle Paul. He's saying, you should have listened to me then. Maybe now you'll listen to me. Right? You should have listened to me. Hopefully what has happened has given you some reason to listen to me. I'm talking to people who hate me and who don't believe in the God that I worship. You should have listened to me. Maybe now you'll listen to me because look at what he is about to say. Men, you should have listened to me 
and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Probably very confusing to them, right? So you're telling me the ship's going to perish, but we're going to survive. So they're confused. But listen to me. There's going to be no loss of life among you except for the ship. Verse 23. This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And so it's important to know in verse 23, he's not just saying, like before he said, I think that this trip will be difficult. I think there'll be injury. I think they'll be lost. And they're like, okay, fine. Now he really dials it in and he's saying, no, 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 listen to me. What I'm about to tell you, God told me. Uh, Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. He could have skipped that entire verse and just said, listen, here's how it's going to happen. Here's how we're going to roll. But he said, no, no, wait a minute. This is not of me. This is not Paul. This is an angel of the Lord. I'm giving you a message from God whom I love, whom I belong to, whom I worship. And he urges them to take heart. But now look at verse 27. So when the 14th night had come, Two weeks. The 14th night had come. Lots of time has passed. They're literally being driven around the high seas for 14 nights. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And so they took a sounding. That's a, it, basically, I thought it was maybe something audible. It's not. It has nothing to do with sound. A sounding is how they would measure depth. And so there was like a long rope-like thing with a weight on the bottom. And they were like, well, how, if we're nearing land, the, 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 the water's going to get shallower. Let's see, how, how close are we? And so they take a fathom, I think was about six feet. So they took a sounding that they were nearing land. Verse 28 said they were 20 fathoms, 120 feet. Great. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, 90 feet. And fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So it is nighttime. They let down all the anchors. Okay, they're going to hold still there because they don't want to run aground, even though Paul said they're going to have to run aground, and prayed and waited for day to come. Now look at this. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, remember that boat? So they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors, anchors from the bow. And so it's like, what are you doing? Well, we're laying out anchors. That looks like a boat. Is that the boat? Really? Wow. We didn't notice. We're going to get in it. So they're under the pretense they're trying to look like they're lowering anchors from the bow. But in reality, what were they trying to do? Well, Luke tells us they were trying to escape from the ship. But Paul, verse 31, said to the centurion and the soldiers, hey, lest these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Okay, so it's not unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. (laughs) But unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers did what any soldier would do. They cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Bring the sailors back into the ship. And now it is without a boat, a ship without a boat. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Saying, today's the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food. 
It will give you strength. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Take some food, you're going to live. Take some food, you're going to need this strength. Take some food. Not a hair is going to perish from the, hair, from the head of any of you. Verse 36, uh, verse 35 rather. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Here it is. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, okay, so they go from having not eaten anything, very sick, to having eaten enough. It's not just like a little bit. They've eaten enough. They've eaten their fill. They lighten the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So it's a ship without a boat. It's a ship without food now. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed the bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. So if you're keeping score, it's a ship without a boat. It's now a ship without food. It's a ship without anchors. So this is it. Left them in the sea, verse 40, at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but they struck a reef, verse 41, ran the vessel aground, the bow of the ship, that's the front, stuck, and remained immovable, the stern, that's the rear, and was being broken up by the surf. So here it is, the ship will not survive. Remember Paul said that? The ship's not going to survive. So it's a ship without a boat, it's a ship without anchors, it's a ship without food, and now it's people soon to be a ship, soon to be without a ship. Verse 42 says, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim, jump overboard, swim for land. The rest would ride on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Point number one. You need to remember that God's purpose and plan for you isn't limited by you. God's purpose and plan for you isn't limited by you. Now let's face it, every one of us has limitations, right? You're more aware of your limitations probably than most people. We all know those limitations. We're fallen, fickle, finite human beings. You might look at yourself in the mirror and say, look at me, I'm too fill in the blank. I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too uneducated. What would I have to bring to the table particularly to the kingdom of God, to advance his purposes, to glorify him. I've never even, again, fill in the blank. I've never traveled. I've never had any success with talking to people who were lost about the gospel. I've never had any success in convincing people to give Jesus a shot. I'm too new to the scriptures. I'm too new a Christian. I'm too far removed from reaching people with the gospel. Or maybe you just look at your season of life, your station in life, and you think, I just can't be used by God. I'm, I'm, I've got too much to do with the kids. I've got too much to do at school. I can't be used by him. I'm not even mad about it. I'm just saying it's not going to happen now. I'm too busy. I'm too untrained. I'm too uneducated. And the bottom line is this. Why would, you're just thinking rationally, right? You're not down on yourself. You're not pulling like an Eeyore moment. Oh dear, I can't be used by God. You're just saying, probably not going to happen. It's probably not. There's other people. Why would God use me? When there are better options available through whom to work through. I've got this baggage of being too young or a weird station of life. I'm too old. I'm too new to Christianity. I'm too limited. And here's the thing. You are limited. 
You're absolutely correct. You are limited. But look at Paul. Look at Paul, the man who dedicated his life to helping people kill Christians, is now being used by God to convert people to Christianity. Now Paul's a prisoner. He's in custody. If you're not in custody today, you have a leg up on Paul. Paul's in custody. If his ministry isn't over, it's at least understandably on hold, right? Wrong. Because if you were to work through chapter 27, which we basically just did, you will see how Paul's role radically changed from verse 1 to the end of the chapter in Acts 27. He starts out as just a a man in custody, but by the end, he's caring for everyone on board, and he's risen to this unofficial rank of being the leader of everybody on board, so much so that the centurion wishes to save Paul. He doesn't see them as this worthless prisoner that he doesn't really care. That's fine. If you want to kill him so he doesn't swim to shore, that's fine. No, he actually wants to preserve Paul's life. And even though Paul was a prisoner, God still used him. His ability to deal with a crisis elevated him from a a prisoner who is in charge of nothing to the acknowledged leader of everyone on board. And so please remember, God's purpose and plan for you isn't limited by you. I could never share the gospel with someone. I'd mess it up. I'd misrepresent Christ. Someone else would do better. I can't invite so-and-so to church. They don't even like me. I just get in the way. They'll associate Jesus with me. They don't like me. They won't like him. Someone, someone they like will invite them, so I'll leave it up to them. Can't teach a children's ministry class. What are you, crazy? I have a hard enough time keeping my own soul in check, and the last thing that Chelsea or Amber or Cindy need is for me to be on their team. Maybe one day, but not today. I couldn't be used by God in student ministry. Teenagers wouldn't like me. Someone else can do it better. Counseling? What are you, crazy? I'd just mess it up. I'll make a bad situation worse and make that person wishing I had therapy for myself. I can't be involved in that. God's purpose and plan for you isn't limited by you. What about you? Look at your season in life, your station in life where God has you right now? What personal limitations, not perceived fake, I mean legit limitations that you have in your life that cause you to believe that you probably won't be used by God. You're certainly not the path of least resistance. What are you, are you past your prime? Have you not reached your prime? too out of it for whatever reason, too unskilled, untrained, inept, just generally unable. God's purpose and plan for you isn't limited by you. Moody quotes a British revivalist who is named Henry Varley, who said something to him. People attribute this quote to Moody, but it actually wasn't his. He's just Repeating it. I mean, there's nothing original, right? So he's just repeating it. Quote, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. And so what about you? What might God do in you and through you for his glory and the good of people, his people? as a person who would be fully dedicated, fully consecrated to him and said, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me in whatever way 
you please. I have limitations. I'm well aware of my faults. I'm well aware of my inadequacies and my shortcomings. But I'm willing to give it a shot because I really believe that you can and will use me. Again, if you're not in custody, you've got a leg up on Paul. God's purpose and plan for you isn't limited by you. Now, the rest of our time together, however, may not be so encouraging or as uplifting because there's another truth, perhaps a a greater truth that we need to focus on when it comes to Acts 27. Question, just by a show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the Footprints poem? Footprints, you're like, sure, I've been in the bathroom of a Christian. Right, I don't know why I see it in so many, like, is that when we're contemplating life? Probably, right? Got nothing else to do. You're sitting looking back on your life. So there's the footprints poem that's hanging in the bathroom or wherever you've seen it. If you're unfamiliar with it, um, it is uh, a poem where the author is talking about uh, their walk with the Lord, the author's life and their walk with the Lord. And looking back, I see two sets of footprints, right? But then there's sometimes where I just look back and I see one set of footprints and I notice that those set of footprints or not. Can you tell how unpoetic I am? I'm just like, I'm reading to you like it's a narrative, right? But anyway, there's a time where he's like, I think the one set of footprints doesn't really coincide with the, uh, or does coincide with the hardest parts of my life. Why then am I walking alone? Why are there two sets of footprints when life is easy, but when life is hard, there's only one? And God says, what? It was then that I, what? Carried you, right? It's a beautiful illustration of the Lord's love for us and carrying us. Which I think is accurate for like three percent of life. I'm a dad. I'm certainly not a heavenly father, but I'm a father. I have four kids. I've carried all of them. I think it's fair to say I'm seeing as I continue and I've been a father now for 17 years that I will spend more of my time in fatherhood not carrying them than I did carrying them. Right. Lest I slip a disc. I'm not saying God doesn't carry us. Sure he does. Just like I carry my kids. But I can't carry them forever. Now that's where the illustration falls apart, right? Because God could carry me. He's not going to slip a disc, right? He can carry me no matter what. I'm not against the footprints poem. I'm just saying, if you look at your own life, how often has God, like when I carry my kids, and all four of them, I've said the same thing. Like if they're tired or they're cranky, I go, shh, just rest on daddy. Just rest on daddy. They lay their little head down, and that's when they're just like, they're just like, I'm carrying them, and whatever, walking back to the car, I'm carrying them to bed, because bedtime surprises them every night. Tonight, bed? And that's why I have to, okay, yes, I know, we're going to sleep tonight. You still need sleep. So I carry them to bed. They lay their little, rest. just rest on daddy. And it's just like, okay. And they're just resting there and they just know I'm, they're going to go wherever I take them. They've, they're just being carried along. They have really no say in the matter. They're just trusting and resting in daddy and they just rest there. But that's for a very small portion of their life. And I would submit to you that with our heavenly father, that's not the norm. More times than not, 
God calls his people to ride out the storm. He doesn't rescue them from it so they don't have to experience it. He calls people to ride it out. That's what he says in verse 22, or he says through Paul, Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. He doesn't say, take heart, I'm about to rescue you from this storm, we're all going to float to Malta. Right? He doesn't say that. Uh, There's going to be no loss of life. The ship is going down. Oh, the ship will go down. Uh, But you're not going to lose your life. You're like, thanks, I think I I feel cool, I think I I don't feel better. Wait, the ship is going down, I'm not going to go, I don't even get this. Verse 25, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. More times than not, God calls you to ride it out. It's the most counterintuitive thing imaginable, right? That God, our loving, gracious, kind, merciful, powerful Father, would call us to ride out a storm he could so easily save us from. Right? Like how many times when you're in the middle of a trial, you start reminding God what he could do as if he forgot? Lord, how much glory would you get if you just caused it to go away miraculously because it would easily, clearly be of you. How much glory would you get, Lord, if you just suddenly caused the storm to stop? It would, like, obviously be an undeniable miracle. Everyone would know it was you. How much glory, Lord, would you get if you just healed him? Just boom! The malady is gone. The cancer is healed. The disease has gone away. Doctors are stunned. The person is healed forever. How much glory would you get, Lord? Lord, how much glory would you get if you just saved her? If you granted them a child? If you caused just whoever the bad guys are to suddenly stop and the good guys to suddenly win? But more times than not, you need to realize that God calls his people to ride it out. And he says, I will get glory by bringing them through this storm, not taking them out of it. They're going to ride through this storm, whatever that storm is in life. Like in this case, it's a legit actual storm. They will, I will get glory by bringing them through this storm, bringing them, not, not just like, you know, there's not like this, Laughter in the Godhead. Hey, watch this. I'm going to bring them so close to death. It's going to be so fun. What? He, that's not what he's doing. But I'm going to bring so much glory to, God, to myself, God says, by bringing them through this storm that on the other side of it, they can say, look what God has done. Because I love my children enough. Yes, sometimes to say, rest on daddy. But more times than not to say, let's ride this out together. Now, there are many reasons why we'd rather jump ship than ride it out with God. I, in your outline, if you're looking at that on your device or if you printed it out, I've listed four of them. Uh, Four reasons we'd rather jump ship instead of ride out the storm. Number one, God is taking too long. Certainly, he would have acted by now. Since he hasn't, he probably won't. Just look, I'm going to call out some verses in your Bible in Acts 27, and I'm going to call attention to some words. See if you can follow along. Try to get an understanding of how long this was. Verse 3, 
the next day. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous. Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in. That's a season, bro. That's like three months at least. We're going to spend the winter in. Verse 18, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for what? For many days. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come. I mean, this had lasted a long time. They're not like throwing in the towel like after, it's been so hard for two days, where is God? No, long time. This has lasted a long, long time. Not a single one of us should be sitting here with their Bibles going, huh, bunch of pansies, just didn't trust in the Lord. That's because we're sitting on dry land for like 40 minutes and not as long as they have been. But what about whatever storm you're in or have been? How long have you been praying for relief? How long have you been praying for healing, for comfort? How long have you been praying for salvation for a loved one? How long have you been praying for some sort of help in the midst of your trial and God hasn't yet answered? And we often make the mistake of thinking since God could, he would. Since he hasn't, he won't. And so we start taking matters into our own hands. Because God could have done this and he hasn't done it. So it's not because he lacks the ability. He must lack the desire. All right, I've got to take it into my own hands. That's what God's doing. And that's what the sailors did in verse 30, right? Can you blame them? I don't know about this Paul guy. But if we're going to be saved and he believes in his God, do you notice this? Like many days have passed. Nothing has changed. Bro, maybe we should just listen to him. He's a prisoner. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a loon. He's crazy. He's on trial in some way, shape, or form because he's crazy. Let's go. There's a, there's a boat at the end of this ship. Let's just make like, well, let's just give it a shot. We're going to die here. Maybe we can row to land. Maybe we can get ourselves to land. Let's go. All right. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? Let's all say the correct answer together. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? The correct answer is yes. Right? That's what we, that is the correct answer. You're willing to wait on the Lord. We know Isaiah 40 and verse 31. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Not they who rush the Lord, not they who take matters in their head, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount upon wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Are we willing to wait on the Lord? The answer is yes. But I think here's what we really mean when we say that. When we answer the question, are you willing to wait on the Lord? We say yes to a point. Like there is a line I have, Lord. I don't know where it is. I don't know that I could define it, but I'll know it when we've passed it. And when that point is reached, you think, okay, he's God, I'm not. This isn't hard for him, but he's not moving, so I'm going to jump ship. What are you going to do, bro? I'm going to row. Which direction? Away. Away. Hopefully I'll get out of this storm. Which way do you have to? Any way is better than here. I'm rowing. How far away is Lent? I don't know. I'm rowing. I'm going to do it. 
when in reality it's way more dangerous out there on your own than it would be for you to stay in the storm-tossed boat that God has you in, riding out the storm. Reasons why we would prefer to jump ship. Number two, God isn't answering our call for help. We're so obsessed with escaping, we ignore or reject wisdom from others. Acts 27, verse 11, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will, it's going to be hard. It's going to be with injury, much loss. Verse 11, centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. He was, again, I'm not saying he was wrong, but he's focused on what? Getting to the destination safely. He's not listening to what really is godly counsel from Paul, right? And he's a prisoner. Why would he trust him? I get it. He's like, listen, yeah, thanks. I'm glad you perceive that. We kind of perceive that too. And he's trained. He knows how to drive this thing, navigate this thing. I'm focusing on him. But thanks for letting me know you think it's going to be rough. I think what we need to do is, is, is go through this. I think what we need to do is navigate this. We need to take this ship into our own hands. But Proverbs 14, 12, Proverbs 16, 25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. But God isn't answering our call for help, so we've got to do it ourselves. Got to look out for number one. Reason number three, we know what God says, but think what we're going through is probably different. This is the downfall of so many Christians, so many times, myself included. I know God's word. I know what God's word says. But every time we know what God's word says, we look at him and we go, yeah, but this is different. Buckle up. I know that God's in control, but this is different. I know that God has ordained these things to come to pass, and he's in control of the end and the me, but this is different. I know that God loves my kids more than I love them, but this is different. Do you know the amount of young women who would say on any survey, their voting record reflects it, that they're staunchly pro-life, but make a different choice in the moment? Do you know why? Because this is what? Different. And that's no attack on them. That's just saying, do you realize how powerful the words, but this is different, can be in your life and to take you to places you never thought you'd go to do things you never thought that you'd accomplish? Yeah, but this is different. Anytime we know what God's word says and we say, yeah, but this is different. We're in a rough spot. It's easy to doubt in the dark what we believed in the light. I knew this was true when I was in an easier spot in my life. I knew this was true when I was outside the trial. Now I'm in the trial and I'm doubting it. I'm not sure. I thought God was good when God was actually like my life was good, but now my life is very hard and I'm wondering, has God just forgotten that's our, that's our next point. God must have forgotten or rejected us. So I have to take these matters into my own hands. The psalmist in Psalm 77.9 asks, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? God must have forgotten us. Or maybe God's rejected us. Psalm 60 verse 1. Oh God, you have rejected us. 
broken our defenses. You have been angry. That's really dangerous, right? We start playing connect the dots between what's going on in our life right now and some deep, dark area of our life. Nobody knows about it, or very few people know about it, but God, like, totally knows about it. I mean, let's face it, you never really got control of your temper. You got control of it in public. But you never really got control of it. You never really forgave her in your heart. You said you did. Outwardly you did. Inwardly you resent her and God heard your thoughts. Publicly you're working out your issue with lust. Privately you just lust. A long time ago, maybe years ago, you sinned in a way you never thought possible. But it's buried. It's done. It's in the past. You've been forgiven by God, by others. It's not even named among you. God loves you. But that's just because he's being consistent with his word. You know he loves you. You just don't think he likes you. Right? Here are my kids, God says. I've got Tom and John and Susie. That girl. He probably rolls his eyes when he thinks about you. And so, sure, you'll get heaven when you die. But you'll come pretty close to hell here on earth. Why? You've kind of got it coming to you, don't you? But that's just not how God rolls. God calls you to ride it out with him because he loves you more than you can ever imagine or dream. In our finite minds, we wish he'd carry us and make it all go away, right? Just rest on daddy. I get it. I wish that. I understand that. But in God's infinite wisdom, he knows it's better for everyone involved, you and him, to ride it out. So that you would come out on the other side of that storm saying, oh my goodness. So that you'd have an Acts 27 chapter of your life. This was the trial. This is how it started. This is how rough it got. This is how storm-tossed I was day and night, day and night. But look, I'm on the other side of it and look what God has done. Not because he's forgotten you, not because he's rejected you, but quite the opposite. Because he loves you. And he says, let's ride it out together. What trial, difficulty, uncertainty do you have in your life right now? You say, you, Peter, you say like it's one. Have you noticed it's 2020? Whatever. What trial, difficulty, uncertainty do you have in your life right now? That in every way, shape, and form, you are looking for an exit. You are trying to make your own way of escape. But maybe God is saying, ride it out. I've got this. Let's ride it out. See, point number three, you can ride out the storm because even the storm itself is in God's sovereign hands. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10.
Take a look at verse 13. Paul says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So that word temptation, two things. Elsewhere it's translated trials. But also, some of the biggest temptations I've ever faced in my life were in the midst of a trial. I'm tempted to jump ship. I'm tempted to make my own way. I'm tempted to think God has forgotten me. I'm tempted to think this, I, this is happening because I had a coming and God's, I'm connecting the dots. Some of the greatest temptations you will face are when you're in the midst of a trial. Where is God? Who is God? Has he forgotten to be compassionate? Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God, though, is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so you can ride it out because although it's new to you, it's not new to God. So there where it says it's common to man, no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. It's like, great, so you're telling me other people are miserable. Thanks, pastor. No, what I'm saying is this is, this is new to you, unique to you, common to man, common to God. God's not having to like figure this, whoa, this is a big one. Wow, Pete, thanks. He's not having to figure this out. It's common to him. He has grace ready for me in that moment. Why? Because the trial that's new to me, not new to God. The trial that's intimidating to me, God's like, I'm on it. This is not hard for me. Hard for you, yes, I get it. So not hard for me because I'm God. It's common to man. And then look at the second part of that verse. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. The storm might be too much for you. Of course it is. But God knows your limits better than you do. And so some people say God loves you so much he'll never give you more than you can handle. Uh, Categorically false. God loves you so much he will give you more than you can handle it and then ride it out with you. You're like, I can't handle this. I can't do it. And God's like, I'm going to give you strength that you've never seen. I'm going to give you peace that surpasses understanding. That's why people going through a trial, you're like, that person's in so much peace. Trust the Lord so much. I would never be able to do that. The reason you say that is because you're not in the trial and God hasn't given you the peace. Why? You don't need the peace. But if you were in the trial, you'd get the peace. And so you from the outside look at that person saying, look at how they're riding it out. I could never ride it out. Now here's the question. Would that whole little situation where God gets the glory happen if God just, poof, pulled you out of that trial? And the answer is no. But in that situation, God gets glory by giving the person who's going through it the grace that they need and other people the opportunity to do this. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how they have peace. I don't know how they have confidence. I don't know how they wake up each and every day. I don't know how they sleep at all. And that person says, I don't know either, except God. And that's why God calls us to ride out the storm. God knows my limits better than, he, better than I do. Lord, I can't take it beyond here. First of all, you can. Second of all, I'll help you do this. I'm in this with you. Ride it out. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, let us then with trepidation, with nervousness. No, Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence, full confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. And believe you me, sister, believe you me, brother, when you're in that moment, that time of need, and you need that grace, there will be grace to help. In the moment grace that God will give you, and you will say, that was God. And finally, the third part of that verse, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. So God will provide the way of escape with that trial, right? But look at how it ends. He doesn't say that you may be able to escape it. He says he'll provide a way of escape that you may be able to what? Endure it. So knowing that God's going to provide a way of escape, he's letting you know that so that you can endure from now to then. God will provide a way of escape. Cool, can you do that now? Sure. We just escaped. No, he's going to provide a way of escape so that you can persevere, so that you can endure it for his glory and for your good. Second Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You may wish he'd carry you so you don't have to face the storm, but more times than not, God prefers you ride it out that you walk through it together with him, that you ride it out together. And he'll hold your hand and you'll experience the mercy and grace of his grip on your life and come through it saying, my father in heaven is so good to me, so kind, so loving, so protective, so strong. If there has to be a storm, I'd rather ride it out with him than run away from it on my own. And so granted, he's not carrying you out of the storm saying, just rest on daddy. But you experience something else just as loving, his grip, his grip on you. We went to the beach last month. And I'm riding the waves with my kids. And I'm always projecting this. I love the beach, love the ocean, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. But I have to always be like confident that we're not going to die. And sometimes there's waves that come that I think this might, this might be it. Like this, I did it. I took him out too far. It's too rough. And I'm always like, no, it's not a big deal. And I'm out there. I'm like, this is for sure a big deal. And so I've got Silas, and he's in his swimming, like this deal. with the. Is that what they call it, a swimming? It looks like a frog. But you know, you know what I'm talking about? It buckles in the back. And so he's in that. So at least I know that as long as that's on him, he will be afloat somewhere in the high seas. But he will be afloat. <laughs> And I'm holding him, and I'm holding his hand, and we're jumping around, and the waves come, and we ride up and down the waves, ride up and down the waves. But then if you've ever been spending any time in the ocean, you can see that wave from that distance, we're not riding it, it's going to hit us. Like you can, the white caps are coming, it's starting to curl, and that's when you start just contemplating eternity. Like it's probably, this may not end well. And then Silas experiences something that he hopefully interprets his love from his, va- from his father. My grip. Because I hug him close and say, this is going to be so fun. <laughs> You're going to love this. We're going down. This is a huge wave. Here we go. And I'm like, please make this fun, Lord. Please make this fun. And we get slammed by this wave. But I've got him. I'm not carrying him out of it, but I am carrying him through it, and my grip around him is so tight because I love him. 
And because he's buoyant, it might help me, like if this thing is too... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Silas, we're going to ride it out. God calls us to ride it out. And finally, you need to remember that safety always comes as a result of surrender to God. Always. Surrender precedes safety every time. We see that in verse 32. The soldiers cut away the ropes, let the ship's boat go. The, verse 38, they had eaten enough. So this was the last meal. How do we know that? Chuck the rest of the food into the sea. So we're near land. Will there be food on that land? Hope so. So if you're watching on TV, you can't see that the carpet's now wet. Look at you all laughing with your masks. (laughs) Safety always comes as a result of surrender to God. Cut away the boat. Throw away the food. Cut away the anchors. Verse 44. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. What might you be clinging to for safety that has yet to deliver? What would throwing it overboard look like? It's not that God's calling you to do nothing, but what might you be clinging to Putting all your confidence in, how's that going? And what's stopping you from surrendering it and more fully trusting in God? If you don't trust in God, why? If you're a Christian, you say, yeah, but this is different. Why? Why is this different? If you're not a Christian and you say, I don't know, I can't trust him. Why? Why? What is stopping you from surrendering your life Surrendering that trial and putting it all in the hands of our sovereign, great God who says, there's going to be storms and I'm going to give you the ability to ride it out for my glory, for your good, all the time, every time. Just surrender to me. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the grip that you have on our lives. But there are times when we look at our lives and we're just wondering, are you working? Do you work? Are you doing anything? It's so scary. It's so dark. It's so daunting. So Lord, help us to remember that we cannot always see what you do, how you're working, but we can trust that you are. That we don't always feel relief coming and safety coming immediately. But we know that you never stop doing what you're doing for your glory and our good. So help us to surrender that which we are holding so incredibly tight to that we think will deliver better than you. And show us the areas of our life where we need to ride it out with you for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.